magic number Yes it is It's a magic number Somewhere in the ancient mystic trinity You get three As a magic number The past and the present and the future Faith and hope and charity The heart and the brain and the body Give you three As a magic number It takes three legs to make a tripod Or to make a table stand It takes three wheels to make a vehicle Called a tricycle Every triangle has three corners Every triangle has three sides No more, no less You don't have to guess When it's three, you can see it's a magic number A man and a woman had a little baby Yes, they did They had three in the family That's a magic number Three, six, nine Twelve, fifteen, eighteen Twenty-one, twenty-four, twenty-seven Thirty Three, six, nine, twelve, fifteen, eighteen, Now the multiples of three come up three times in each set of ten. In the first ten, you get three, six, nine, and in the teens, ten, it's twelve, fifteen, and eighteen. And in the twenties, you get a twenty-one, twenty-four, twenty-seven, and it comes out even on thirty. Yeah. Now multiply backwards from three times ten. Three times ten is thirty. Three times nine is twenty-seven. Three times eight is twenty-four. Three times seven is twenty-one. Three times six is eighteen. Three times five is fifteen. Three times four is twelve. And three times three is nine. Three times two is six. And three times one is three, of course. Now take the pattern once more. Three. Three, six, nine. Twelve. Twelve, fifteen, eighteen. Twenty-one. Twenty-one, twenty-four, twenty-seven. Thirty. Yeah. Thirty. Now multiply from ten backwards. Three times ten is thirty. Three times nine is twenty-seven. Three times eight is twenty-four. Three times seven. It is right now. 425 rather and that means it's about time for me to be wrapping up I invite you to stay tuned to WCBN FM Ann Arbor for the Living Writers Show which will begin at 4.30 followed by the Free Speech Radio News Report well the last set I had for you today contained the following Three is a Magic Number by Bob Duro Con Un Amor by Kubop City Big Band I Spy by Steel Pulse, Digging Up the Yard by The Other Side, and the first song of that set was called The Beat Goes On by Buddy Rich. Well, I hope you all enjoyed listening to the show as much as I've enjoyed putting it on for you today. This is DJ Electronica bringing you Freeform. I have enough time to squeeze in one last song. It is by Kayo and Albert and is called Walk Down. Enjoy, everyone.
Sally, she lives away down on Shinbone Alley. The number on the gate, the number on the door, and the next house over is a grocery store. Stay all night, stay a little longer, dance all night, dance a little longer, pull off your coat, throw it in the corner, don't see why you don't stay a little longer. Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, I am pleased as I'll get out to have George Saunders. Welcome, George. Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thanks for for being here. Thanks for talking on the radio. Mm Pleasure. (laughs) Just to to start us off, I'm going to, let's see, I've got many of your books here in the studio, um, and so we'll see what... what, um, what we end up talking about the most, George, but mostly this is a time capsule of you. Oh, boy. You right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the listeners might want to just doze off in advance. <laughs> no, no. 
Um, and uh, your, let's see, your most uh, recent book that came out from Riverhead in 2007 in paperback um, was the Brain Dead Megaphone Essays. Mm. Uh, so I'm going to read from the back your bio. Uh, did you write this one? No, no, George? no, no. no? We, have okay. profe- we have professional help. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this, as as writ by professional help, George Saunders is the author of In Persuasion Nation, The Brief and Frightening Reign of Phil, Pastoralia, Civil War Land in Bad Decline, and a children's book, uh, The Very Persistent Gappers of Fripp. He was named one of the best American writers under 40 by The New Yorker and one of Entertainment Weekly's most creative people. In 2006, he was the recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant and a Guggenheim Fellowship. He writes for The New Yorker, Harper's, and GQ, and is the recipient of multiple National Magazine Awards. He teaches at Syracuse University. All true. <laughs> all true. <laughs> Nothing to take Nothing. issue with. And it's all downhill from there. <laughs> no. He entered the autumn of his years. And... <laughs> No, <laughs> no, that'll be the next bio, right? right the next. That's right. <laughs> so you don't, so you don't, um, you don't write those because a lot of people say, "Well, I had to write it," and then you know, and that must, and it's kind of weird to speak about yourself in the third person. Yeah, but especially I guess, if you have a, if you have a Catholic background, then you're always kind of putting yourself down. You know, George Saunders is full of it. He's, he's, <laughs> he, he thinks very. He's Mr. Big Shot. Right. <laughs> he teaches at Syracuse, but not well. <laughs> Right, you're like what um, uh, Janet from one of your stories. Um, I think it's Pastoralia in the cave would call like the Mister Big Snot Nose guy. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, Mr. You get, well, you get that inner nun hardwired, you know, to keep you down to size. Right. I should have known that you were probably raised Catholic mm-hmm. because of the story, um, or no, rather the essay where you um, you thank Esther Forbes, yeah. the writer Esther Forbes, and it's because a young nun, nun <laughs> teacher. Uh, yeah, there was. A, you, I had a nun in, in third grade <laughs> in Chicago, a nun uh, named Sister Lynette that I had a huge crush on, and uh, and she gave me a copy of Johnny Tremaine. She kind of pulled me aside and said, you know, this is kind of a hard book for a third grader, but I think you can handle it. And of course, that along with the crush really <laughs> made me aspire to finish it. And uh, and, I, and I actually loved the book, but also it had she had I think it was a Caldecott winner, so it had a, a gold stamp on it, a gold medal. And I was so proud of it. And I would carry it around with that facing out, you know, so that people would see that I was reading an award winner. It was song. foreshadowing because well, we've just listed your awards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was it was actually what I loved about that one was that she gave it to me, that she thought enough to give, and also that the uh, Esther Forbes has has a really distinctive prose style, and I'd never really uh, read anybody at that point that had put so much uh, thought in, in, into sentences. So it was kind of shocking how, how much I loved it. And I read it, you know, over and over again that year. And I need, I need to check it out now. <laughs> it's, no, it really Johnny is a good book. it's a really beautiful <laughs> book. It's, but the funny thing was that in this, in the book, the kid is, uh, he's a sort of really virtuosic, uh, silversmith, kind of a smart, it's kind of Mr. Big Shot. And, uh, and one time partly from sabotage and partly from hubris, he, he gets some silver spilled on his hand and it, it like, uh, melts all his fingers together, and he's ruined. They put him out of the, out of his job, and all this kind of stuff. And somehow, I I love the first part. You know, his sort of fall from grace. And after that, there's a redemption phase, which I read once, but I didn't really like it. So I'd kind of obsessively <laughs> read the first part. The downhill slide was really, <laughs> and the way that his whole world turned on him after that uh, accident was really appealing to me. Some sick uh, way. Why? But, yeah. Why I don't do know. I, I think for the same reason that I like Charlie Brown, that that kind of idea that. Um, well, actually, I think it has something to do with this idea that. Uh, 
if, well, this is a pretty cynical notion, but here's what I think. If life is going well and you're in a nice position, uh, in a certain way, the, um, that's an illusion. I mean, that could easily be, be stripped away. And so when I was a kid, I think that was really, uh, amazing to me that your good fortune was conditional, you know, that it actually wasn't necessarily a lasting, it wasn't lasting. And it also wasn't a result of anything you had done. So for me, it became kind of a theme throughout my life that, that I'm always exhilarated when I re-realized that, that, you know, even though we think our good fortune has something to do with our virtue, in fact, it's mostly just chance and it can, and sometimes does just go away in a heartbeat. So something about that was, I think at the heart of that. that do, do you feel like you're, you're sort of on a precipice usually, George? Cause it would seem like things are, you know, <clears throat> really going well. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it isn't, it isn't that I, uh, so much that I'm worried for myself, but just the idea that, um, it, when you really take a step back, any good health or good luck or whatever is, is, uh, conditional. It's, it's, it's luck really. And so if, in fact, I mean, I think most of us, uh, in America for sure get through life without too many, you know, there's no starvation generally or genocide. But for me, the, the thing that bugs me and maybe it's just kind of neurotic, but the idea that that, that's fine. You could, I can, let's say that someone could say, yeah, George, you're going to live to 107 years old, sexually active to the end, you know, a thriving <laughs> specimen of manhood, no problems. It's, it's just the idea that it could, it could be taken away. And then every day that it isn't is sort of just, uh, you could say it's, it's a gift from God or it's luck or it's whatever it is. But that, right. that to me is something that gets under my skin a little bit. And uh, I know, I, I think you just have to figure out what to do with it. And, and so to me, it kind And not of, to have it be a neg- something active on you, right. acting on you in a negative That's sort right. of and way. That's right. And because if suddenly because of that, you don't appreciate the fact that you're in a nice radio s- studio with nice people and you're not starving and, you know, then you're an idiot equally, you know? So, mm-hmm. so I, so I think in a way, uh, this might be stretching, but, but, but my fiction has been a way of kind of dwelling in that possibility, you know, sort of saying, all right, so, uh, today's pretty good for me. What if it wasn't, what, uh, is there, a, <clears throat> is there a way to sort of mechanically imagine yourself less lucky than you are. Well, there is. It's a storytelling. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my stories have a, uh, you know, kind of a worst day ever quality to them that I think has to do with that tendency. Maybe. Right, because even the first line isn't um, of Pastoralia. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Sure. That, uh, or, or close? It's, it's actually pronounced Keith. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, a lot of people make that mistake, so don't, exactly. don't feel bad. I'm devastated now, George. Okay. Like your first line from Keith <laughs> is, uh, "I have to admit, I'm not feeling my best." Right. Not yeah. that I'm doing so bad, but yeah. yeah. So it, yeah. it really is. It's it's throughout. So well, I always my uh, one of my mantras is in uh, the story Gooseberries. Chekhov has this line where he says, um, uh, um, "Every happy man should have an unhappy man in his closet." with a hammer to remind him by his constant tappings that not everyone is happy. And it's, you know, uh, sooner or later life will show him the happy man, it's claws as well. So I think in a certain way, I mean, this was, it's claws. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, somehow fiction had, has become kind of a way of ritually, you know, being that unhappy man with a hammer for myself, just to remind myself that, that, um, what looks like permanent, good fortune is actually mm. just sort of a trick, a little trick of the, of fate, you know, and the illusions. Yeah. 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 And I'm so, I'm so happy to hear you. Not that, <laughs> not so that I want you to be you're suffering. <laughs> 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 you're, 
<laughs> um, but no, because often I, I also feel this sense of urgency, like to bring mm. to things. And, and I think it's because I feel like it'll be taken away, which yeah. is sort of what it sounds like you you use in a way you said maybe even to fuel the fiction yeah. and so also i think wonderful. the idea that you know if you uh, just this this thing that we were taught as catholic kids uh, and i think the nuns catch a lot of grief but this is one thing they were good at the idea that you um should be able to step out of your fortune position and look across the river and go wow that guy is really suffering that woman's having a bad day and that that actually is the, the essential part of your job here on earth is to step out of yourself and and imagine you know there but for the grace of god go i so i mean that, that seems to me a valid way to you know to to work through stories or a, re- a reason to work through stories right right uh, um it's it's interesting when i was reading um the let's see vonnegut vonnegut and sumatra mm-hmm. essay in um, the brain dead megaphone mm-hmm. uh you had you s- said that you were a young man uh, maybe, maybe 24 mm-hmm. was it when you were in sumatra yeah. and you were um there with a crew sort of in a uh, out of the way location looking for oil for oil yeah it was a- and you'd have you went uh you'd have uh to go get some books uh, once every couple of weeks, and those were would you'd have to make do with until right. the next um, day out <laughs> yep. came. Um, and you had been influenced heavily by Hemingway, and so this m- maybe was by going to Sumatra. Was that like um, intentional on your part to try and put yourself somewhere? Um, well, I think it was kind of it, yeah. It was an attempt to sort of put together that you know young writer bio dos- dossier kind of thing. But the the beauty of it was I had never been out of the country at that point, and we were. Uh, part of an oil crew that was really kind of raping and pillaging the, I mean, we were going into virgin wilderness areas and prospecting for oil and tearing it up pretty good. And then all the money would go to Jakarta, you know, away from this region. Uh, So it was really great for me because I had gone to an undergrad school that was kind of... uh, it was an engineering school, and at that time, it was sort of, I think it was Reagan in Colorado. was, it was in Colorado. Reagan was president, and the prevailing ethos was kind of right-wing, and, and I'd read uh, Ayn Rand, which, who, who I loved. And so I had kind of a, a Reagan-esque view of things, just be, just because. And then, so to go to Sumatra and just every day see the kind of human fallout from those kind of ideas. And nobody was was hitting me over the head with any kind of dogma or anything, but just to see that, okay... Um, you can read Ayn Rand and say that engineers and capitalists are actually the saviors of the world. And then in Singapore, I used to walk by this construction site uh, where after hours they would bring in a team of old women, I mean like 70-year-old women, uh, to, to clean the rubble, the rocks. So this kind of hallucinogenic thing where you'd be stumbling home drunk from some bar, you know, doing mock Hemingway in your head. And then suddenly in this floodlight area, you'd see all these old women, seven, literally 70, 75 years old, each with a big boulder in their arms, lugging it off to the side, you know. So it's sort of by attrition over the two years I was there, my politics changed. And I don't think I even knew that's what was going on. But to see... you know, just was the, there anyone there to talk to no, about this, no. or were you, was it something that you had you started writing by that point? Because you I, had Hemingway as maybe I had started a hero. sort of journaling in this kind of mock Hemingway mode, but I hadn't read enough to really be doing anything very interesting. And most of the people that I worked with, uh, it was there was no. Um, the talk was more or less just, aren't we lucky to be here and having so much fun? And, you know, because we could do, uh, we worked four weeks on and two weeks off. 
And at that age, it was I was making what was a lot of money for me, and it wasn't taxed. And so you could do this kind of weird uh, theme park deal where you could fly from Sumatra into Singapore, which is beautiful and exotic and dazzling, and then go wherever you wanted. You know, I, I would go to the uh, the Khyber Pass one time, and to Russia, and uh, up the Malay Peninsula, always for two weeks. So you'd go for for four, come back for two, mm. and you were totally. It was like a, I don't remember. There, was a, there used to be a cartoon show called Mr. Wizard, and this guy would go back in time and whenever he got in trouble he would recite this little mantra and be whisked out of it you know oh. so that's exactly what <laughs> this you, was like did you have a mantra too yeah it was it, just, it was a card, it was credit like, go card, back to know? the hotel oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no but you'd be you know you'd be i was visa. arrested in moscow and all this and you know it's kind of scary until you don't want it to be at which time you just bail out and go back to, uh, the, to the crew so that was a but really you were arrested in moscow yeah i detained but you know, but but it, but the whole thing was so wonderful because you start to You're see. You're not going to tell the story. Oh no, it was, it was kind of boring. I, mean, I just <laughs> okay. was taking photographs somewhere I wasn't supposed to, and and assassinated Brezhnev. And, you know, so anyway, <laughs> nothing really. That, but but so it was it was a really great um, kind of full body politici- politicization. You know, uh, that I didn't even know the name for, but then very slowly, uh, and it all kind of for me it sort of capped in um, reading Steinbeck later on, and sort of going, oh, yeah, that's what he's talking about. You know. Oh, okay, well, let, let's take a short break, George, and then we'll come back with, with Steinbeck and maybe Kurt Vonnegut a little bit, too. All right, you're listening to The Living Writers Show. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Living Writer Show. I'm T. Hetzel, and today, George Saunders is in the studio. Woo! If we had a studio <laughs> audience, everyone would be going mm. wild right now. <laughs> and yeah, I wish, in fact, I was looking um, at your website, George, the saundersaundersaunders.com, yeah. <laughs> um, and you have some links to different um, 
different like the media blitzes parts yes, and, yes. and and the um and the great megaphone one with the um but anyway and Stephen Colbert you went on his show I did, I did. so how was that with him you know running you know getting all the applause and yeah, then running no, up to was, the table well it was fun he's a nice you know a nice guy and before he sort of says you know I, I'm I'm going to portray an idiot and you feel free to, you know, <laughs> disabuse me of my idiocy. And I, but, and so I thought, oh yeah, great. And I said, well, let's really mix it up. Okay. And then you go out there and suddenly he's grown about three feet taller and he's really aggressive. And uh, so it was fun. Cause know. he's pretty tall to begin with. He's pretty isn't he? tall to begin with, but he got really big. And, uh, but you know, it was, it was interesting. I mean, it's an interesting six minutes. that feels like one minute and it's, you know, very intense. And, and, and the trick for the, the person appearing is that you, are not supposed to get laughs and you can't actually because the audience doesn't like you you know automatically so it's really oh really yeah and so part of your job is to act in my case i kept saying act like an offended academic because that's kind of what your job is and then um, oh so you actually go on as a, i didn't realize that you're also acting when you go on the well show, i mean like you don't have persona. to but okay. you sort of know that he's that's what that he's, he's doing, doing a persona yeah. and so it's a kind of a delicate act because if you're too much of a smart aleck it doesn't it doesn't work. Uh, if you come out doing shtick that's supposed to be funny, that would be terrible. And also, if you di- if you attack him too directly as a real conservative, that doesn't make sense since everyone knows he's not. He's so not it's, right. it's, you have to really play it by ear. <laughs> and uh, so it was. It was. I came off and I was sort of hyperventilating, <laughs> like God, what? The? And, and then you know, and then suddenly he's really nice again and just is very sweet. And you, you know, so. But you actually got like the. Um, you did get to have the last word on that clip, or not last word? Like it was some competition. But and I could see. I thought he broke character a little bit when yeah. you said sometimes a pox popsicle is just a pop it was really fun and because just like you could yeah, see yeah. the light but even a couple minutes before that he was so, leading me we, i could so feel we sort of locked eyes and i and i saw where he was going and i think we had a little bit of telepathic uh, uh showbiz communique <laughs> <laughs> that's great well it's good to know you can you can do that oh it's good god to have once the... <laughs> you do it once and then go home for the rest of your life um well, well, let's get back to Sumatra just for a moment, because um, yeah, so there, because you wrote an essay in the Brain Dead Megaphone with um, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, Vonnegut and Sumatra, and that's where you said you read Slaughterhouse Five right. and those the pile of books that you brought back. Right. You, the trick was you'd go with a suitcase and get whatever was going to sustain you for that four weeks when you were back in Sumatra. So if you didn't make the right choices, you'd you know burn through your books in three or four days and have nothing. So uh, I'd heard about them and I didn't uh, and I was. Sort Sort of predisposed to Hemingway, Ser- uh, Thomas Wolfe also serious. Mm. Even though I was raised, homeward angel, yeah, something yeah. real earnest and lyrical and stuff like that. And and um, even though I was raised in Chicago, very funny family, lots of jokes. I I you know I think in the way that someone uh, who isn't raised in a particularly um, artistic, you know, not not a bunch of writers around or artists. I. I didn't think that whatever was natural could be very useful. So in other words, humor didn't really belong in literature. Literature was high-minded, and it was somber, and it was tragic. Uh, so when I read Vonnegut, at first I was a little put off because I knew he had this great material, you know, World War II uh, stuff that he'd lived through, and I wanted to see it done sort of in a Hemingway-esque way. And, of course, what he does is something much crazier. And I think actually perfect, you know, more more beautiful. But at that time, I, I, I kind of thought, oh, you know, why did he sully his deep tragic experience with space aliens, you know? But yet you kept reading it, you said. I, yeah, so I mean, you, it you, your initial was repulsion, but yet you were then com- intrigued right. enough to, like, disturbed and kept reading it. But I was too much of a lunkhead to recognize <laughs> that being, dis- you know, that the keeping reading is actually a pretty good diagnostic of what you might want to do. For me, it was, right. I, actually, at that point, I thought difficult reading 
meant good writing. You know that that if you, you if you couldn't understand it, if it was mystifying, if you had you know misidentified the gender of the main character, that was good. <laughs> you know that meant that it was a great novel. So so you're even in the though drawing I, room in the first part of the sentence right. and you're out in Alaska, and suddenly, and the suddenly end, there's no yeah. roof anymore. <laughs> right. But um, I I and I've been you know a big fan like people of my generation of, of Monty Python and Steve Martin and all this and uh, you know and just. Uh, like anybody recognized the raw, beautiful energy of some of those Python skits, mm. but that that would be literary was this, the jump that I couldn't quite make. And it took me a number of years actually to figure that out. But that's so interesting because what we started talking about um, here was your thanking Esther Forbes, mm-hmm. who you came across in third grade, right. thanks to Sister yeah. Loretta. Lynette. Lynette. Actually. Oh, God. That's okay. Sorry, that's Sister right. Lynette. Yeah. <laughs> Should be emblazoned. Sister Loretta was too. another story altogether. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry to bring this no, flashbacks. No. <laughs> Can we take a break? <laughs> exactly. Here, have some water. Have some, yeah, a cold, a cold compress. Yeah. But speaking of compress, like you, you mentioned, like there you, you found direct nice original nice language. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful compression, yeah. right? <laughs> Did you know I was going? Because <laughs> you say on Rocky Island's gulls woke. Yeah, that was an Esther Forbes sentence, and I, when I, as a kid, I noticed that she didn't have a comma in there. It wasn't on Rocky Island's. Gulls woke. It was on Rocky Island's Gulls woke, and I think that was the first time I realized that neurologically I, I was hypersensitive to that kind of thing, and I got a lot of pleasure out of the fact that she had written it that way and would go around kind of you know composing little sentences in my head to describe what was going on, and uh, so that was and you know that window opened in third grade and closed again, and it wasn't it was many years before I I felt that again, but just that sense that it really does matter how. You you say something, uh, not only in terms of correctness, but in terms of being able to convey a little extra bit of reality just in syntax or, or punctuation and stuff like that. So that that really has been sort of an abiding interest of, uh, of mine. And, and the, the writers that I love, the, the one thing they seem to have in common is that, that they have spent a lot of time honing sentences to do whatever it is they want them to do. And, and loved as sort of a core group of writers or writers that you're finding um, in different you know, Both, years. really. I mean, I know, in other words, we do, I teach at Syracuse, and one of the things that I'll do sometimes is just to clear the air in the workshop, because you know how that can sometimes get a little stifling. I'll just uh, randomly take a first paragraph of six or seven stories, some old classics, some new stuff, just photocopy the first paragraphs and then just uh have everybody read them right in in the workshop and just react to them and i think that's very important to remember that the way you interact with text is going to be a pretty good clue as to how you will write that that pleasure is a valid uh idea in, in writing and if something gets you off a sentence is thrilling that's important it's not trivial it's actually the way that we are propelled through a story is just by sentence by sentence sort of hopping from rock to rock in that way you know at least not, I don't think everybody reads that way but some people do and so I, I like to try to remind myself and my students that ultimately it's the sentences and and if you don't have those if those aren't giving pleasure at every pass then all of the other stuff theme and character and political but it can't happen unless the the sentence by sentence progress is pleasurable so are you do you also write poems George are you? I I have but I don't have you know it's funny I've, I've noticed in uh, that I the uh, my talent such as it is is a very very thin ledge and 
poetry, I like it and I kind of, I can do like maybe, you know, on a scale of one to 10, a, a kind of decent six, you know, but somehow for some reason it isn't the, the I don't really have the, the, the heart for it somehow. E- even though you have that deep attention to language, cause yeah. to, to feel the, the absence or presence of a comma there is actually yeah, I should such be, an indicator. I should be able to, but for some reason I, there's, I, I, I noticed, um, you know, there's that part of your development as a writer or any kind of artist where you, you know what you want to do. Well, I've recognized that as kind of a stupid phase because was, actually, oh, okay. well, for me, it was almost my whole life where I would sit around, you know, in grad school thinking, well, I want to be Hemingway plus some Graham Greene, but a little bit cool <laughs> like Kerouac. And, you know, uh, and I think that's healthy. And But ultimately, I think the actual process of being an artist is much more frightening, which is to say, yeah, pal, you want to be that. But what are you really? Right. You know, out of all the things you can do, is there some tiny sliver that you can do? better than anyone else if you if the first of all if there is lucky you second of all do you recognize it when you do it third of all can you get there reliably fourth of all can you push yourself out into that sort of iconic space recognizing that it, it isn't necessarily what you wanted to do you know i i think i would like to be Chekhov, mm. but good luck he's already been done and and when i try to do Chekhov, i do a pale imitation so then you have to get into that scary place where you're sort of embracing your own defects and neuroses and uh things about yourself you're maybe not crazy about and saying well weirdly you know when i write a theme park story it's slightly sci-fi which i don't even like sci-fi it's more interesting when i try to do a historical novel about you know about uh the Civil War or something. So right. uh, that I found it exhilarating and also a little depressing that, that that's really the job is to push yourself out into that place where you don't really know what you're doing and you're not even sure you like it, but it's at least has energy. Yes, and the energy of like these of creating these bursts of pleasures there. Exactly. And and that's really all there is to it. There is you know, you, you can dress it up and after the fact, you always do. You know, you talk about the, your critique of the of, of advertising culture or patriarchy or whatever. But I think really, it, it's just. Um, and I'm being particularly honest because I'm coming off a period of not interviewing much, so I, <laughs> I, I've just been writing. But but I mean, the truth is, I think it really is about trying to make a little fun, make fun. You know, you sit there and write something that will that gives you pleasure in the writing and will give off pleasure on the other end. And you don't as as uh, what's your name used to say, you don't know what it is. You know, you don't necessarily know. Uh, the nature of the pleasure or if it has political content or if it's righteous you just know that it's fun you know yeah and, yeah and in that fun like something true about it as well like that seems to be in yeah although or, I, well, no, no I think you're right or, I think you're right although I also noticed in, in in actually doing it that's not a thought it's it's more or less just it's either kicking or it's not and uh-huh. and then after the fact you I mean, I think you're probably right. There, I mean, that's why it's pleasurable because it's truthful or it's compressed or whatever. But I do notice that in the process of of actually doing it, it's much better if all that stuff falls away and you're just being a real cold-hearted assessor of pleasure. You know, that was huh. that's funny or not funny. I don't care if it's true, <laughs> even if it's false. I'm going to say it if it's funny. You know, that, that kind <laughs> right. of thing. Right, yeah. right. Um, and and so, do you think is um, is part of this when you're okay false can also be like this imagined like your imagined mm-hmm. settings where these stories seem to be in the future right. often in your fiction mm-hmm. um so so is that part of is that critical then to this releasing yourself for me it is only because i'm uh dopey you know for me if i if i say uh i'm gonna write a story about my actual life the energy drops. so for me as an artist it's been really useful to say it's the Virgin Mary theme park, and therefore I, it, that exempts certain modes of expression that are dull and forces me to do stuff that's a little more high wire, you know. So in in, in a sense, I it, it's really just to 
It's kind of like if you knew that every time you tried to sing slow jazz, you would suck. <laughs> then you're probably very true. Well, but, but, <laughs> but you knew that if you, if you sang marches, you were terrific. Then you would have to make sure that the piano player did a march. So for me, the alter, alternate reality stuff is more, mostly that, really. But I've also come to develop a model of fiction that's more like um, your job is not actually to make... Uh, a picture of what life is quote unquote really like you're just making a little word machine a little machine of words that uh, has some relation to real life but we don't know what it is and it certainly doesn't have to be linear you know and we know that when you're reading uh, that f- a story about that imagined world part of the pleasure is your mind trying to map that world onto the real one but what, what's sort of fun is that it does not have to be linear it, it can be a funhouse mirror relation to it but the pleasure I think comes from your mind's holding the two things simultaneously you know so that's liberating because it means you don't really have to worry about truth i don't think you don't have to really worry about you know your agenda or your political beliefs you just have to make a, a little scale model that uh gives off some energy i think yeah you know? this machine of words this yeah. little machine of words yeah. okay well let's um george let's take a short break and we'll come back you're listening to the living writer show to sleep You lie awake and think about the girl and never ever think of counting sheep When your lonely heart has learned its lesson You'd be hers if only she would call in the weeds. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, um, you're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. <laughs> and today, George Saunders. Um, so, And we were just talking about... Um, the little word machine yeah. that um, uh, that gives off puffs of energy. <laughs> I wasn't. That sounds ridiculous. That sounds insane. <laughs> I just got here. <laughs> well, this yeah. well, this sock puppet that you brought, George, was yeah. talking about that. <laughs> um, no, okay, not that. But what? But what you said was that. Um, it allowed you this this fiction, this this creation, and this kind of this setting up um, uh, the Virgin Mary theme park, for example, like uh, allowed you to write the the in a way that you yeah. felt um, if with your. I don't know why I'm trying to recap. I'm sure everyone's been <laughs> listening. No one. But we probably didn't lose anyone through the Sinatra. But but that made me think. But whoa, um, you write really well with yourself in the story. Or in the real story, yeah. your your nonfiction, which is this the brain did megaphone essays. Well, thanks. Um, so so how do you so so reconcile that, well, George? No, no, I can't. No, no, no reconciliation. <laughs> no, I I um I really love those pieces. Partly, you know, because the thing is uh, about writing and writers or art is that you you always have. Uh, I think you tend to make oppositions. So either it's a word machine, blah 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 blah, or it's somebody writing from life. But to me, uh, that's a 
I still have that Hemingway love. I still have that desire to go to, you know, Cambodia and write about it. And so I think what with the nonfiction, it gives me a chance to kind of indulge that impulse and go to these places and try to make sense of it. Uh, and and actually, you know, I I did it in part because I. Uh, had hit a bit of a midlife doldrums, you know, where I was kind of, I knew so well what I was doing in fiction that it was becoming a little bit flat, just to, or just starting to. And my daughter sort of challenged me to go on this Dubai trip, you know. And, and uh, so I went, and actually it was really wonderful just to see that, well, for example, in my fiction, I don't do a lot of physical description. Uh, well, on those trips, you kind of have to. You know, it's a nonfiction piece. You have to do that work. Uh, I also don't... Although you uh, would have a photographer with you, I'm imagining. Not in for this some book, of them. For but, some of them. But with a yeah. magazine. Really. Right. But even there, it's, you know, you still for the sort of health of the piece, there's got to be this thing where you say, you know, we're standing in the main exhibition hall and, you know. Uh, so that was really fun to see that even though it's not my natural inclination, you you know, you can pull it off. You can you can polish it up. Or uh, on those pieces, for example, to go on an eight-day trip, and you come back with what you come back with, and there's no invention allowed, and all you can really do is shape. Uh, so that was interesting for me. So I, I, I really uh, enjoyed them because they made me step out of my habitual assumptions about fiction. And now that I'm writing fiction again, I'm, uh, I'm just vaguely aware that I have some resources I hadn't been tapping yet. So that kind of makes it fun. Like what? what do you... Well, I mean, for example, in those pieces, they were about 12,000 words each. And there was a fairly tight time frame, you know, maybe three or four months, which for me is, I could never write 12,000 words of fiction in that short of a time. So it meant that uh, you had to be a little rough and tumble. You know, I had to say, okay, look, geez, you know, I've got, I've, I know there's eight instances I want to write about. The, that means I got to do uh, 1,500 words each, get going, and just start throwing some stuff down. And what I found out was that in that kind of rough and tumble way of writing, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of energy in sort of epic scale, you know, to take the events of eight days and just lay them out there uh, without being too precious about it uh, was really refreshing. And I, and I noticed, uh, it's almost like mm, I noticed how, how, pleasurable it is, again using that word, to write about actual things or to sort of tell things in a fairly tame way for a while, that that actually allows the reader to get grounded a little bit for what's going to happen. So it was kind of just this experience of... Um, what's going to happen, but you, when you're writing the piece... You don't know what's going to happen. You don't. You know what right? happened, or, or but what's interesting is you, you don't know how you're going to shape it. And in, in some, some of the trips, there was a real natural narrative, and others there just wasn't. So you had to make that through structure. So, But it was, it was um, I think maybe, you know, it's a little bit like someone who, the example might be a cook, you know, a chef who spends 15 hours making a small meal, and someone says, can you, can you make something for us? Sure, you've got an hour. And you get to use a kumquat and a dead squirrel and a tire. Go, you know. And then the, the, what the chef will find out is that well, it can be done. It's a little different, you know. But maybe he finds out that he has a certain, you know, uh, gift that he didn't know about. So I think for me, you know, I, as I'm getting older, uh, I notice that it's really, really important to, uh, you know, get yourself out of your comfort zones and especially artistically to make sure that you don't get so sure of yourself that you start painting yourself in the corners. So those trips were a great way to just say, guess what you're a beginner you know you don't know anything about this and uh you're on a limited time frame get going and that's it you know yeah. it's really fun yeah it you know what's also interesting too george is i was thinking that there was um a voice that was sort of a, a solid voice even um with your fiction even though the 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 characters and the stories are are, are widely vastly different mm-hmm. um but there's still there's this there's some quality about the voice that's there yeah. and that voice is also in your your nonfiction. and then i thought um well 
duh, <laughs> like well, it's your voice. Right. Like, and I, I don't know, like sometimes I don't, I don't know really how to talk about these ideas of craft in, in relation to voice yeah. very much. Like, well, I think, I think voice tasteful or no, no, I like it. I, I'm very interested in it because I don't get it. It's confusing, but I know when I was younger, I thought what you did is you decided what kind of voice you wanted and you went out and got it. And I think but now it's not... more like you start with, and actually one of the exhilarating things now with being older is I can start with almost anything. I can throw on any junk. But by revising it, it'll kind of very slowly move back towards what you're talking about, this thing. And I, so it's been kind of a comfort to know that you don't have to decide about voice. You just start. And, and just by exercising your taste over and over and over again in revisions, the thing will gradually move. And it's kind of mysterious. It'll move towards a position, I think, of more truth, more velocity, more interest, more honesty, and more you. You know. Mm. And, and the beautiful thing is if you have 15 writers all doing that, they're all going to the texts are going to move towards them, you know, individually. Uh, I, I always think it's kind of like if you, somebody gave you an apartment, a, a furnished apartment in that sort of generic furnished apartment look and said, okay, now, Ikea. This, yeah, yeah, this is, this is <laughs> if your, you're lucky. Right, if you're lucky, right. I've had worse, but, but this is yours and you, and you can have this every day you can swap out one item, you know, and so systematically over, and this place has everything. It has little tchotchkes and it has paintings and, you know, everything. Um, very slowly, as you as you replace items, that place is going to become you, no matter what. It's going to be you're going to be felt in it. So I think that's my philosophy on revision: is that if you give yourself enough time and you go through it over and over again, you know, you go through it as your happy self, you go through it as your grouchy self, as your Hemingway-esque self, as your Monty Python self, as your eventually through attrition by going through it, it's going to move over to something that's uniquely you you know which i found really nice it meant it it took a lot of the luck out of it or the guesswork i I mean i think really more and more i I believe in that thing that i think i think robert frost said uh don't worry work Mm -hmm. if you just keep pounding on it eventually it'll it'll sound like you Keep pounding. Yeah, or or pounding might be too violent a word, but just you know, but, but <laughs> there's sort that of Chekhov's hammer. Tap yeah. tap tap. <laughs> but I think just you know, just sort of say, yeah, you know, this draft is crappy. Well, that's okay. I I can just keep going. And and you know, I went to when I was before my first book came out. I was in this kind of desperate position. We had both daughters at this point, and I was working at an engineering company as kind of a glorified photocopy operator. And I could see my dreams of being a writer kind of fading out. You know, and uh, I went to a songwriting seminar with this guy named Mike Smith, who wrote a beautiful song song called The Dutchman that Steve Goodman did. And he just was doing this sort of uh, seminar in some guy's house uh, in Rochester. And he said something that I, I never forget. He said, you know, if you are uh, reviewing your own work and it makes you sick, I'm paraphrasing him in case he's listening, but, but, <laughs> but, but if, 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 you prepare, if, you, if you're reading your work or listening to your work and it makes you sick, that's really good because it means you still have taste. And if you, <laughs> right? And if you are comparing your song to Dylan's song and you know yours is worse, that's good because it means there's still a, a road by which to improve. So my feeling is that you write something and it sickens you, <laughs> that's really good because it means that you can tell, you know, good from bad. And then you can start saying, okay, what is it that's making me sick? And you can say, well, you know, paragraph three is chubby. It's got a lot of waste. Oh, all right, that's easy to fix, and you can fix it. And suddenly, you hate it less than you did. So the only do you enemy, ever do you ever love it though, George? Like, what do you feel about these these books here on the I table? I just feel or? happy that they're out. And you know, I mean, I can I I think uh, after I'm done with something, I love it for a, a while. You know, I, and I can read it and go, perfect, perfect. Yes, that comma's in the right place. And then I notice it over. The weeks and months and years, it, your grasp loosens up, and now I read something of mine, and I'll just kind of go, "Oh yeah, 
that's kind of good. You not, you know, not. I, I mean, I, I heard Vonnegut one time uh, at a talk saying that for him, his work was kind of like if you'd been skiing all day, you only ski around a hill, and at the end of the day, you look up and you say, "Oh yeah, that's where it was in the early afternoon. That's where I was at five o'clock." And it's not really, you know, saying, "Oh, I'm so happy I ski that way." You're just like, "Yeah, I did that." So, kind of. The map of the map of the mountain. The map yeah, and of it's fun. And it, you know, of course, <laughs> okay. the, the truth is, it's it's fun while you do it. That's actually the. I mean, everything else seems to kind of fall away. You know, uh, nothing really lasts. But if you if you're in a good place when you're doing it, and if doing it makes you marginally more generous that afternoon, then that's a good thing. And you know, when when you were um, despair, that's a lovely thing to say, actually, like that, and doing something that you need to do. And you said you were marginally despairing of becoming a writer when you mm. were working at that moment. Like, what what changed for you? Like, what kind of um, pushed you through that time? Well, what really happened was uh, I I started embracing the humor that we talked about earlier. I, I suddenly it, it it was almost like I had a scrim up that said, you know, thou shalt not do literature that's funny or that's uh you know fast or kind of contemporary and and in my desperation you know of, of seeing that that um whatever i was doing wasn't working that scrim kind of dropped and actually it, it dropped in a very particular place i was in at my job in a conference room and i'd been sort of i was a tech writer and i'd been sort of um thrown a bone which is i got to be the transcriber of this conference call so i'm sitting there kind of you know <laughs> some bone <laughs> a big step up for me from the photocopier but but i was but then so there was something where i didn't need to, something the guy just said i'll just forget it and so i'm sitting in the room and and uh and i was just writing these little kind of dr Seussian poems kind of silly almost just out the corner of my eye kind of thing and then just drawing a picture and then I turn the page and do another one and by the end of that session I had about nine of these things you know that were just really just like dog roll kind of thing uh, and brought it home and threw it on the kitchen table and then I was doing the dishes or something and I heard my wife laughing from the other room and that was the first time you know she's a writer also and and we you know we we were going through some kind of hard times money wise and stuff and and uh, there'd been a lot of big promises by me you know about which the novel would save us and so on and none of them had yet so it was, but it was the first time in a number of years where someone had responded to my work with actual pleasure you know as opposed to oh you know the workshop interesting you know or that <laughs> so so that was a big thing and somehow that and then um Something a friend said to me. He just—I'd written a, a kind of funny story years before, uh, before grad school, and, and he said, "You know, that was actually the best thing you've ever done." And somehow those two things, I thought, "Well, yeah, of course. Why would I um, leave my most um, natural self at the door?" You know, and and, and uh, so that was a big difference. And suddenly, as soon as I gave myself permission to put the scrim down, then it was just fun. And and the the symptom of that was that I always knew what to do in a story. You know, I always when I was huh. allowing humor and stuff, I always knew. But before, when I was trying to be Hemingway or Chekhov or whoever, or Carver, I didn't know. Huh. I didn't really know how to do. It. I didn't know, really know what I was supposed to be doing. Because it was what, like, what would you know? What would they do? Or exactly. what would Jesus do? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't coming from from. Inside, it was coming from outside, and that uh, is very stifling. So, so that was, even now, that's my main barometer. If I'm, if I'm lost, well, if I'm, if I'm, if I have no taste, no, if my taste isn't kicking in, then I know I'm probably in the wrong place. Whereas when I start doing something fun, I always kind of know what to do, you know. Well, let's take a short break, George. Uh, you're listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. Won't you scratch my itch, sweet Annie Rich, and welcome me back to town? Come out on your porch or step into your parlor, and I'll tell you how it all went down. Out 
with the truckers and the kickers and the cowboy angels and a good saloon in every single town. Oh, and I remembered something you once told me, and I'll be damned if it did not come true. From Cheyenne to Tennessee We flew straight across that river bridge Last night at best two Welcome back, if you're just tuning in, The Living Writers Show today with George Saunders. Um, so, George, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> here we are. Here we still are. Exactly. Now, where we where were we before we had we were so rudely we interrupted? Were, by <laughs> we were back in the conference room in 1987. This one, and when you and when you like, well, okay, let's even go before that. Like, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? Because you were an engineer, right? Mm-hmm. And you're why did you go to be an engineering student? Was it because um, you read the fo- fountain? It was head, actually, or, yeah, is yeah. It? yeah. I oh, had yeah. two great teachers in high school uh, who just saved saved me and got me into college and and encouraged me to go. And they had. Uh, and I think well, one of them was a geologist, and he had always talked about the Colorado School of Mines as the best uh, earth science school in the country. So at that point, I don't think I had any interest in being an artist or, or being an English major. That all seemed way too, you know, too like, effeminate or something. You know, <laughs> So I just wanted to be Indiana Jones or something. Right. Uh, but, but actually, you know, it seemed to me like, I guess also coming out of uh, the place where I was coming from, Engineering was a valid thing to do. You know, it, it, you made things, or you, you know, right, right. Uh, but yes, and you were still making things as a writer. You make things too. Yeah, but they're not things that can break. You know, yeah, <laughs> they're, I know. True. But I mean, at that that's point, a, it really was just ideas kind of, can't break. No, the, <laughs> I think it was, it was partly reading. Uh, I actually remember going on a uh, trip with some friends, and at that point, I think a senior year, my plan, my my career plan was get in rock band. You know, and <laughs> that was it. And we were in this kind of bandit, and the guy who, who was in charge of it said he knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who knew a guy and the Eagles. And the idea was we would practice and we would get somehow on tour opening for the band who opened for the band who opened for the Eagles. This was the, and it, we were like, oh yeah, that sounds like a pretty good plan. That, you know, that is a sure thing. You bet. You can, can, we, can we cast the check? But so I was, that was my plan and I read um, Atlas Shrugged and, and, uh, on a long car trip and something clicked in and I just remember really, I'm, this is so embarrassing, but I remember thinking, 